anger and violence in Peru as people fill the streets in a call for the president to step down. We'll take you to the capital, Lima, for the latest. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon, and this is Up First from NPR News. And another massive shipment of heavy weapons to Ukraine. But once again, it does not include the tanks Ukraine wants so much. We explain why and why the war there may be soon escalating. And are single-use coffee pods better for the environment than all of us thought? We'll debunk the hype. So please stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your weekend. Demonstrators and police have clashed for a second night on the streets of Peru's capital, Lima. Anti-government protesters want the president to step down, new elections, and a new constitution. Last night's violence means the political chaos that has consumed the country for more than six weeks doesn't look any closer to ending. So far, more than 50 people have lost their lives in the unrest. NPR South America correspondent Carrie Kahn joins us now from Lima. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you've been out on the streets talking to protesters. Why do they want the current president out? Well, the protests first started last month after the arrest and impeachment of former President Pedro Castillo. He had tried to dissolve Congress. He was this outsider, someone who represented the forgotten, discriminated poor and indigenous. And during those first waves of protests in the South, more than 50 people were killed, mostly at the hands of security forces. And those deaths have just enraged people all over the countries. And the protests now have spread to Lima. And the demands have intensified against President Dina Boluarte and protesters want her out and they want justice for the dead. So how has the president responded to these protests? She says she's not going anywhere. She's defiant and calls the protesters vandals. Ustedes quieren generar caos y desorden y para dentro de ese caos y desorden. She said those people are trying to generate chaos and disorder to take power in the country, and they are mistaken. They will not be allowed. She says the protesters are manipulated and paid by outsiders. This is her signaling her siding with the conservative forces in Congress. She does say she's still willing to negotiate with all opponents, but her opponents are digging into with demands for new elections and her resignation. So, I mean, it sounds like it's a real stalemate. Like, is there any possibility of compromise or or, or some way out of the crisis? It's just a a tough one to answer. No one is budging. I spoke with political scientist Eduardo Dajan at the Pontifical Catholic University here, and he says Boluarte is a political novice, just like her predecessor Castillo, and she's playing this poorly. You cannot address a problem by insulting those that you are trying to bring to your side, no? And he says that while there might be coordination and outside influences on the protesters, their grievances are real. You know, look, Peru has great divisions, and they're just getting bigger economically and geographically. The, the country's export-led economy works better for urban Peruvians and has not worked well for those in the southern, more indigenous areas. The growth gap is growing, and the political divide is huge. It's getting more polarized with each election. And there are lots of elections and political turnover in Peru. Since 2018, there have been six presidents, six in the last five years. Wow. I mean, it it just seems like there's just been this cycle of unrest and instability. Is that sustainable? Uh, it's the country has muddled along for those last uh, five, six years, but the country's struggling economically really 
right now, especially since the pandemic. Poverty has spiked. Uh, food insecurity is up. I was talking with Eric Farnsworth from the Council of the Americas in Washington, D.C., and he said the Peruvian case is just the latest democracy in the region showing signs of stress. If the political leadership now cannot find a way to uh, return calm to the to the streets, that that does open the doors for uh, bad alternatives. Peru does have a history of dictators and strongmen. Politicians are very weak here. Congress is hated, too, even more than the president. And the way the system is set up, they both have means of sabotaging each other. And they keep doing just that without ever addressing Peru's deep problems or finding solutions. That's NPR's Carrie Khan in Lima. Carrie, thank you so much. You're welcome. The U.S. and other NATO countries say they're sending what is possibly the largest package yet of heavy weapons to Ukraine. It points to more and more severe fighting in the war there. Let's turn to NPR National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. The U.S. and uh, its allies have been sending a lot of weapons to Ukraine through the war. Why is this one different? Well, let's start with the sheer size. This U.S. package of $2.5 billion is the largest single one, aside from one that was announced just two weeks ago for $3 billion. In addition, the U.S. and its partners are focused on two key areas for Ukraine. One is air defenses, which are needed to guard against these ongoing Russian missiles. And then there are hundreds of armored vehicles that will be going to Ukraine, which would be crucial for any Ukrainian offensive. Put all this together, and it certainly points towards heavy fighting ahead. Ukraine is going to get a lot of weapons, but not the tanks that they so badly want. How significant is that? It is significant. Ukraine says these tanks would be very valuable in ground combat. They'd like to have 200, maybe 300 of them. But the U.S. and Germany are not sending tanks, their tanks, which are considered the best in the world. The Pentagon argument is that it has put together a coordinated, good overall weapons package that Ukraine can use in the very near term. They say that tanks, because of training and maintenance issues, would not be a good fit. Um, We should also note Ukraine does have some old Soviet-era tanks, and Britain just announced this week it will send about a dozen of its tanks. Ukraine would just like more and better tanks. Greg, what, uh, what will the fighting ahead look like? So right now, Scott, there's really two main fronts. First is the ground combat in the east, the Donbass region, and in particular around this town of Bakhmut. It's been contested for months and is still being heavily fought over. The second, of course, is the ongoing Russian airstrikes on the cities trying to knock out the power supplies. So both Ukraine and Russia are believed to be planning offensives. And for Ukraine, Crimea is considered the most critical area. And I spoke about this with retired Army General Ben Hodges. He used to command the U.S. Army in Europe and work closely with the Ukrainians. Crimea itself is the decisive terrain. That, that's, that's the end game, is the liberation of Crimea. Uh, as long as Russia occupies Crimea, Ukraine will never be safe or secure. 
and never be able to rebuild its economy. Now, he stresses that the Russians are dug in there. They took Ukraine back when they first invaded in 2014. But Crimea is this peninsula that's sitting there out on its own. If the Ukrainians can cut off Russia's supply lines to Crimea, this would leave that territory very isolated and vulnerable. And, and Greg, what do we know about Russia receiving weapons from, from North Korea? Yeah, the White House said that Russia sent trains to North Korea back in November. These trains picked up weapons and have sent them all the way to Ukraine. They're being used by the Wagner Group. This is the the Russian mercenary force that's deeply involved in the current fighting in eastern Ukraine. And as we approach the one-year mark of the war, we should note this contrast. We've heard a lot of talk about Western support for Ukraine possibly faltering, yet we're seeing a massive new package of weapons headed there. Conversely, Russia has turned to North Korea for weapons that are going on trains thousands of miles by rail, and they're being given to a mercenary group that relies on convicts who have been freed from prison to fight for Russia. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks so much. My pleasure. There's been buzz in the news about the way we make our morning coffee. Apparently, coffee pods may be better for the climate. But are they, really? Climate Solutions reporter Julia Simon is with us now. Julia, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Scott. And what began all this buzz, the articles and social media posts about coffee pods and the climate? There was this short article by Canadian researchers that ran earlier this month. It looked at the carbon footprint of your coffee. So it compares instant coffee to filtered coffee, French press, and those single-use coffee pods like you use in Keurig or Nespresso machines. The article writes that coffee pods may have less of an environmental impact than the others because they may waste less water and coffee. The machines that use pods also may use less electricity than the other methods. Now, that would seem to be encouraging news, and and there are millions of people and probably even more on their way to using single-serve machines. Oh, if only it was so simple. The first thing is that the article has not been peer-reviewed yet. That means it hasn't been vetted by other experts and published in an academic journal. And this research just isn't settled. A study from two years ago that was peer-reviewed said the complete opposite, that coffee from pods actually has more emissions because of the plastic and metals used to make the pod. The article that has caused all this media fury, the lead author says they hope to get it peer-reviewed. He's very surprised by all this media attention, but you know who isn't surprised? People who study media and climate change. Headlines like this that say your coffee capsule may actually be environmentally friendly, they're alluring. Max Boykoff is a professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Novelty can really drive a news story, something that could be seen as counterintuitive that would grab people's attention that otherwise may not be something that might seem newsworthy. So, I I, I mean, I gather from all this that talking about climate solutions uh, is certainly important, Uh, but you're cautioning we have to be careful about the ideas that we can put forward in our coverage. This is true because people will hear about this study and they'll think, oh, this big newspaper or NPR is covering it. So it has to be correct. We have to be careful, though, when it comes to climate change solutions, 
Wyckoff says that while individual action is important for climate change, media coverage also has to take into account the role of companies like Keurig, Dr. Pepper, or Nespresso that make these pods. And what are those companies doing about the carbon emissions of their pods? Keurig uses plastic for those pods. In addition to being difficult to actually recycle, plastic is derived from fossil fuels. Keurig says the greenhouse gas emissions of their pods is proprietary information, and they're committed to improving the sustainability of their products. Anna Marciano is the head of sustainability for Nespresso. In Europe, we are piloting uh, compostable capsules, but the aluminum is what we pride ourselves on. She says they spend over $35 million a year on a recycling program for those aluminum pods. Still, she says in the U.S., only about 36, 37 percent of those pods actually get recycled. At the same time, Julia, is there anything wrong about people wanting to do better when it comes to making their coffee? Oh, no. I mean, people also have reusable pods. They want to be responsible consumers. But let's not take our eye off the ball here. In the grand scheme of emissions, coffee really isn't that big as, say, meat or dairy or cars or power plants. Julia Simon of NPR's Climate Desk. Whole lot of thanks. Sorry. <laughs> you can resist. It's great. Thanks, Scott. That's up first for Saturday, January 21st, 2023. I'm Aisha Roscoe. And I'm Scott Simon. Up first is back tomorrow with a report on how migrants searching for a better life risk it all as they make the dangerous journey to Spanish outposts in North Africa. And there's more on Ukraine and Peru, as well as politics in New Zealand and why egg prices are so darn high here in the U.S. On the radio this weekend, listen to Weekend Edition by finding your NPR station at stations.npr.org.